I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Dr. Henry Kim. Henry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Brian, for having me. So Dr. Kim is a professor at the School of Business at York University in Canada, the head of blockchain.lab at York. He's the principal investigator of the Digital Currencies Project, a research collaboration between York, Bank of Canada, and other financial institutions and fintech companies. And he's all things Bitcoin, crypto, NFT, Web3, and blockchain. We're going to get into all of that. But Henry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So I'm curious, before we get into some of the nitty-gritty market commentary that we were discussing before we went live, I'm interested, you're obviously an academic, you have some capitalist pursuits as well, but what is the, the, the background that led you to get into this digital world originally? Oh, that's it. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun story. I actually knew nothing about Bitcoin in 2015, and I started engaging a postdoc um, who co-founded a lab with me, uh, Dr. Merrick Laskowski, and we were interested in doing something in like natural language parsing, just some text. And he suggested text from Bitcoin, Twitter, and internet chats, and that's how we got into it. So when it was, because I'm not a finance person, so when it was actually just about Bitcoin, which is all it was, and, and Ethereum a little bit then, I wasn't all that interested. But at the end of 2015, I read an article from Goldman Sachs saying that blockchain technology, the underlying database technology behind Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and all these other NFTs and Web3 and so forth, would be one of the biggest technological technological sort of achievements in the next five years. And then it took my notice. And then I read about uh, something called enterprise blockchain, which is how enterprises like FedEx Bank of Canada could use blockchain technology. So that's how I got into it. That's piqued my interest. At the beginning of 2016, I started going to all these meetups 
And in Toronto, and Toronto is actually a very thriving community because Vitalik Buterin, the, the founder of Ethereum, is from here. Um, and then I started learning more. So I, one of the interesting things, I'll give, tell you a fun story, why I'm an academic, and why is at 2016, I started doing this. I started meeting all these original people. And a couple of years later, when I started, maybe Bitcoin was maybe about $300. A couple of later, a couple of years later, Bitcoin is about 20000 So I was talking to somebody who was an entrepreneur who I'd met at the meetups. And, uh, and we're talking. And he looked at me like that was the stupidest person on the face of the earth. And he said, I've seen you for two years. You hold no Bitcoins? I said, no, that's why I'm a professor. <laughs> and that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Have you been tempted to shift out of academia into more of the business finance space here? Um, no, because I'm not I'm not a finance. And also in academia, because of the flexibility that we have in our jobs. Oh, by the way, I just want to give you a warning. My uh, daughter is six, so she's coming home on an Uber, and my dog will start barking. So just yeah, so that, you know, at no some problem. point, she, she'll start barking. Um, no so uh, as I was saying before, so my job offers some flexibility as well. Again, it, it's it's I'm not a, a finance person. I'm not an investor. I'm a technology person who along the way, because of interest, has gotten this interest in this. And what actually has happened, a big, big dynamic, is that as I said to you before, I was interested in enterprise blockchain, how companies could use blockchains for their operations. And as it turned out over time, what actually happened, I was wrong. I thought enterprise, I thought what would actually happen is that cryptocurrencies would sort of be faddish and that enterprise blockchains sort of sponsored pushed a lot by IBM, would become much more prominent. And the reverse has actually happened, where these public permissionless blockchains that start with cryptocurrencies, they've become popular and they've become promising for other applications. And enterprise blockchains just really haven't taken off. Why? Simple reason is that complex. The simple reason is that blockchains are used in trustless environments where people don't necessarily trust each other. You don't have to. We can get back into that if you want later on. The reality is, so it works well in like cryptocurrencies and this is what Bitcoin miners do is they, they allow Bitcoin to function even though no one knows each other. Turns out with enterprise blockchains, for the most part, you're dealing with people that kind of know each other. So you already have built-in trust in those business relationships. So there's not as compelling a need for database technology that assumes a lack of trust. And then, so what's actually oftentimes happened is that, oh, the other big thing with enterprise blockchains is that everyone, like if you have it and if it's implemented, like if if a, a large supply chain implements enterprise blockchain, it may lower the cost for everybody, right? But the issue there is if it lowers cost for everybody and everyone benefits, well, who's going to pay for that, right? So are they all, if, if you can get them all to pony up and then they'll all sort of reap the rewards, then it makes sense. But that's not how it often functions. So what I found is that it just isn't as compelling technology, given the sort of the business climates that we have. Whereas, again, for cryptocurrencies and all these other things, which are called public permissionless blockchains, where you don't need permission to, to be on a blockchain, these use cases actually make sense. Like NFTs make sense and, and Bitcoins. Well, and that's where I wanted to take the conversation. Oftentimes, the criticism lobbed against less blockchain, but but certainly within the crypto space, is that it's a solution seeking a problem. Ah, and it is, and yeah. it is. for from and so we can get into that. It is, and it isn't. One of the interesting things, if you look at sort of the founders, like the founder of Coinbase technology, and of the early people that are real zealots. Oftentimes, you you hear stories about them sort of working in Argentina or other or other parts of the world where inflation is a huge problem, 
right? And so being able to transact in Bitcoin or or there's heavy government like uh, or governments play with their currencies. So the ability to keep your money sort of from inflating using Bitcoins or the ability to actually make payments to unattraceable payments, like, you know, making donations to Ukraine, for instance, that is compelling. It just so it works in situations where the banking system or the financial system isn't as mature as what we have in Canada and the United States. But we have Canada and the US. It's not it was it's ostensibly designed to be a payment system. It's a lousy payment system. I would never. Right. So for the most part, it's use cases for Bitcoin anyway, aren't really sort of first world problems. Right, or developing developed world problems. The one use case for Bitcoin, I, I hear this over and over again, and this is my, what I'm convinced of, it is digital gold, right? So a lot of people, even Warren Buffett says, he sees no point to owning gold. And a lot of people feel that way, right? And, and many people also feel that it is, that the story is that it is an inflation hedge and it kind of is, and it is a store of value. So a lot of the, if you, if you believe that there's rationale to holding physical gold, then you are apt to believe there's a rationale for holding digital gold, which is Bitcoin. So in some, what I would say is that the two use cases for Bitcoin are one as digital gold and two for these idiosyncratic use cases for say developing world countries, places without mature financial systems. And to be fair, again, I think it's going down uh, quite a bit, but for illicit purposes, I mean, let's face it, that actually is a use case. <laughs> yeah. So the second use case I agree with, right? If you are living in Turkey yeah. or Argentina or Afghanistan, where they don't have rule of law, I mean, inflation is a real problem. I mean, this does circumvent some of the bureaucracy of the state level governing bodies, which are, you know, non-functioning. I understand that. The digital gold part, you know, again, like we talked about before we went live, what we've seen play out over the last 12 months, 24 months, the correlation is very high to the market. So it's not really a diversification tool and it hasn't really been a hedge against inflation either. So I'd love to hear your kind of deeper commentary on the digital gold gold yeah. So in, in actually gold hasn't isn't really an inflation hedge either. What actually is, and I think I've I've started to come to this, is that it's an inflation hedge unless until the federal government until the governments, the central banks start raising interest rates. And then it stops being so if you look at gold, gold was was doing quite well and Bitcoin was doing extremely well when there was inflation. But the real rates, but there were this inflation, but the central banks weren't raising rates, right? So now that the central banks are raising rates, and now that the real rates may actually go past the actual rates of inflation, they're underperforming. So that's the, so what I would say is that Bitcoin is not exactly, definitely not an inflation hedge, but neither is gold. But there's a difference. I think gold is a better inflation hedge, right? And so one of the things actually, I'm trying to be sort of circumspect here. Uh, one of the things I say is that if gold is a store of value right now, Bitcoin is a story of value, right? And I, and I firmly believe that. That doesn't mean that I don't think in the long run that it will be a store of value. But currently, as we sit, as you said, with Bitcoin, you know, correlating with NASDAQ at 70%, it is a story of value. One of the interesting things, though, and I think something that I think your your clients could, could appreciate is that these days, a lot of investing, a lot of life, a lot of investing is narrative investing. A lot of investing is story investing. Now, of course, you know the the extreme in that is crypto, and extreme is in, in that is meme stock. So as long as the money is cheap, you can invest in narratives. You can invest in stories. When the money stops becoming cheap, when the interest rates are raised, then you have to read. You don't. You don't. 
invest in stories you believe in real life. You, you invest in real life. And that's kind of what's hitting Bitcoin right now, I believe. But the interesting thing, though, is that, you know, the, the, the interest rates will fluctuate. At some point in the future, hopefully when we're past through this, they'll, they'll go back down again, right? That probably will happen. So once it does, once the interest rates, the central banks start lowering the interest rates again, I actually firmly believe Bitcoin will be invested again and crypto will be invested again. But for the reason that back when that happens and money becomes cheap again, people will also start investing in narratives again and stories. So let's kind of add on to the central bank narrative. I would love to hear your thoughts on central bank digital currencies and how they interplay with this overall kind of digital currency market, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you think might happen within that space. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's funny because we do a project with the Bank of Canada. And, and so we're working with them on Bitcoin adoption. We're also investigating, talking about investigating on central bank digital currency. So and I just wrote a paper, uh, which I'll send you. Or I, I'm not sure if I'm out, but I'll, I'll find, I'll try to get permission on the China's uh, central bank digital currency, the EU one. Long story short, again, in the developing world, you and me, right? Me sending money to you or me holding money digitally is... I don't necessarily worry about technology. My email transfers work well. My Venmo works well. My PayPal works well, right? It's not a problem we have. But one of the things about all these technologies is that they are what's called account-based money. So when I send, if I decide I want to send money to you through PayPal, there are intermediaries involved. There's my financial institution involved and PayPal involved, right? So one of the things is that the, the central concern for most, or, or if I'm using crypto, uh, so those are sorry, sorry, those are account-based money. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, it's called object-based money because it truly acts like cash. When I send you Bitcoins from my Bitcoin wallet to yours, no other intermediary is involved. In fact, no one knows about that or no one can know about that. So that's the difference between object-based and accounts-based. The nice thing about object base is it functions like cash and we like cash. You know, we don't, uh, even the governments, the, the U.S. government and, and, and Canadian governments, they don't necessarily want to breach on your privacy. They'd love for you to be able to give you give you a digital form of convenient form to give you cash because I don't really can't really send you cash on email or I'm sorry, on mail. Right. But I, I can send you digital cash. So there's a there's an aspect aspect of it, hey, we'd love to our citizens to be able to have the convenience of digital cash, right? But at the same time, it should be legal tender. It shouldn't have to go through, it shouldn't be account-based like using PayPal or WeChat Pay because we're not involved. Money is a central part of what governments do, and we need to make sure that we have control over that, right? So governments ideally would sit back and say, ideally, we would love to be able to give digital cash. The fundamental problem with digital cash, and this is one of the things you hear about over and over again, is it takes weight to give, if I wanted to launder money and I wanted to give you a suitcase full of a million dollars worth of hundred dollar bills, it's money. It's, it, it carries weight. It requires physical effort. Very difficult to do. Unless you have protections in place. If I send you digital cash and that's legal tender and there, uh, it would be easy for me to send you $2 million, $10 million, launder $100 million. And that's one of the things that governments are having to work on. So stepping back, the rationale for CBDCs, at least at one level, and I can talk about the more complicated sort of uh, political economy uh, perspective afterwards, if you'd like. But at a, ra- at a level about governments and their citizens, one, governments want to be able to control their money supply and have control over money. And they don't want 
Bitcoin or WeChat or you know Alibaba or PayPal to have too much of a function in that. The current system in the U.S. and particularly in Canada, there's a tight coupling between the banks and the governments. So the the governments are are contented to some extent to have the banks involved in the money supply system, but they're not necessarily happy with others involved in this, right? And secondly, they'd love to be able to give uh, people, especially the f- people that are financially excluded, that don't hold bank accounts, that do generally are involved in cash and uh, transactions, they would like to give them the luxury and the convenience of digital transactions. I understand the rationale. I do want to get into the political commentary. You mentioned China, widely regarded as being on the vanguard and the forefront of this uh, concept, they launched a digital currency set to expand uh, the pilot in 2023. The EU has announced that they're going to have a digital currency. The UK and the US are widely regarded as being very far behind in this process. Why is that? The UK, I'm not sure. I can't, uh, that may have something with Euro. The US is actually quite simple. US actually has, U.S. actually has the current system suits the United States better than anybody else. Let's put it that way. The, the U.S. dollar hegemony, hegemony, sorry, is benefits the U.S. considerably. So they'd rather not necessarily have to tinker with the system, right? The China, I firmly believe, the ultimate Chinese goal for CBDC is to actually to be a threat to U.S. dollar hegemony. Like I, I absolutely believe that they may not, they won't come out and say that. But that's the ten, you know, ten-year, twenty-year-old, um, along with other other initiatives. Because again, so I, I think that's clear. So that's I think the main rationale for that with the U.S. And then the other thing too, I think with the United States, what I'm hearing is ultimately it's important. So it needs regu- beyond regulatory. It actually needs governmental approval. And and I, you know, <laughs> if you have CBDCs being elevated to being able to um, being talked about in Congress and Senate, that's going to be just a sideshow, right? Uh, with a lot of people that aren't necessarily informed about that. So what I've actually heard from really Daryl Duffy, who's a professor at Stanford and, and involved in World Bank, he actually said something. So we, we sponsor um, a blockchain lecture series and we've had Daryl Duffy. We've had some very prominent people um, give a talk there. And what he said was he considers the US CBDC from the Fed's perspective, he called it the nuclear option. What he'd like to do, what they'd like to do, so this is, they'd like to be able to provide the citizenry an efficient system of digital cash, but have the banks do that. Have the, you know, banks already have the payment rail. So, you know, maybe modernizing SWIFT and they have something called FedNow. So this is the US perspective, getting some banks more involved and doing some of the monitoring, um, getting them to pay for some of these stuff. So what he said was that the, Best option for the United States is have a form of digital cash, but within within so the guardrails of the payment system that currently exists that heavily involve the banks, right? And so they don't have to go too far out, but at the same time they have the benefits of for the citizenry. So I think you know if you're going to ask me what would probably likely happen, I think that what is going to happen is that other com- countries will also pick up a CBDC. If you want to know the the order of how the CBDC is implemented. You, you start with who, you know, who is the most threatened or who is, you start with China because China wants to break the U.S. hegemony. 
you then go to places like Sand Dollar in the Bahamas or Nigeria, because those are places where if they act too late, their fiat currency may not be used. If you're Bahamas and all of a sudden you don't act too quickly, now there exists this U.S. dollar CBDC, then everyone in your country would be using USDC. So you've lost that sovereignty. So those people that are most concerned will do CBDCs. It just so happens that I believe the United States is the least concerned about the world CBDCs because you know, they, they hold the U.S. dollar. I completely agree with you. I, I think the U.S. is in the catbird seat and they have a lot of leverage over international markets due to the strength of the dollar and the, the globalization of the dollar. And I really agree with you that, that China wants to break that hegemony and create an alternative monetary system to compete with the IMF and the World Bank and the UN, etc. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today. My question for you is, I read somewhere that something like 95% of global GDP represented by hundreds of countries all have these digital currencies in the works. How will interoperability occur? And who is going to set these international standards when these all kind of come to launch in the next 12, 24 months? Right. So the, the Bank of International Settlements, which is like the, the coalition for the central banks, they're actually, they're really uh, concerned or they're really investigating these interoperability. So transfer payments. And and so I don't know where they are right now because it, it's kind of hard to do that. I mean, they can sort of play around with it, but it's hard to do full in, in experimentation when actually CBDCs don't exist in these, these countries. So there are twin efforts. So not only are the central banks working on their CBDC implementations at various stages, the BIS is actually working on that. The one thing that BIS actually is more uh, further along on is experiment is working on ones with the EU one because that actually exists. So the, um, the Chinese authorities are working with BIS, but are also working with their partners. So for instance, they've actually started China is working with Hong Kong. Um, again, it's nearby. And they're working with some of the other, Thailand, I think, is another one. One of the things that China, I, I absolutely firmly believe they will do is that sir, their CBDC will be a central part of their Belt and Road Initiative. So, so you know, you've heard, like, I'm sure you're quite aware, but for your readers, I mean, they've been buying, you know, they've been paying for and becoming and, and, and paying for and actually really sort of shepherding in infrastructure incentives all over the world and places like Africa. So they want to, you know, they want to be able to have African natural resources. They want to be able to have lithium and, and things that you need for electrification. Those processes, sort of the, the transfer of money and so forth, will be very conveniently done uh, via the ECMI or the digital, uh, the Chinese digital, the Chinese digital currency. Right. And, you know, famously, recently, some of those debt deals have not gone well for the borrowing countries. It's, but they're it's not, be- yeah. <laughs> and China itself is having a lot of challenges with their own real estate domestically. So we'll see how that all plays out. But I, I agree with you, they are trying to create a parallel system against what they view as the West in general. And do you think this this central bank digital currency, if it is widely adopted and launched, will it create a catalyst to create value within just the, the private crypto space like Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc.? That's a good question. So one of the things is that if, 
I read up on so the Canadian implementation, everyone has different implementations. But one of the things that Canada is talking about is sort of this two tier where you actually have CBDCs at a very, very general level. So either the wholesale level with the banks, but maybe with the retail, but just fundamentally just acting as currency. But then having said that, if you do have this digital loonie, there may be capabilities where you could actually build applications on top of that. So most CBDC implementations, including the one in China and in Canada that people envision, will actually not be using blockchain technology. Because again, it's, it's too immature, it's too open source, and it's too slow. But one of the things that a lot of the Canadian government's exploring, or and other governments as well, is what if you actually sort of couple that with a, a, a layer where people then could use these, like put in smart contracts or and put this on using a sort of blockchain technology to be able to do very fancy stuff with that. And that's where the innovation, I think, comes in. And I think the governments are leaving open that opportunity for that sort of innovation layer. So for the most part, most CBDC implementations will not be using Ether or, or sort of cryptocurrency blockchains. But the layer that complements it, I think that will. And that's the opportunity for Ethereum or Solana or whoever. So I'll give you an example the, the complement to that. Um, what China is doing, and, and I, you know, China can get things done much faster because, you know, there's everything is centralized. They can sort of, you know, they don't have to seek permissions all the time. But one of the things that China is doing is they've actually already created this um, blockchain network service. So again, it's relatively immature, but they're creating this service that actually supports like an infrastructure, uh, a blockchain infrastructure for payments and other types of blockchain applications that supports right now 12 different types of cryptocurrencies including Ethereum, but others as well. So what where I see we could go with CBDC as one layer and then sort of, you know, sort of private, privately designed applications at a layer above that, China's already kind of doing that. And they're about many, many years ahead of where we would be. I went through some of your publications and, and the work you're doing at the lab. It's wide ranging. I'm curious what the most interesting thing you're working on right now is. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think CBDCs are interesting. One of the, you know, it's interesting. I just went to a meetup yesterday. One of the things that I think interests me is, so where does this all go? What's the end game, right? And I think this is something that, that uh, you know, your investors might be interested in as well. In the long run, what's the value of holding an Ether? What's the, like, I actually think the the Bitcoin one is the easiest to sort of make a case for. If it's, if you're, if you hold it, if you have Bitcoins and you're going to treat it like digital gold, then for the same reason that people just hold physical gold, you hold Bitcoins. You think it's going to appreciate in price and it's going to do well in inflationary environments. The thing that I'm most interested about in about right now is, and my research is is thinking about, is what's the long-term goal? Like, what's the end goal, end game for uh, me as an investor holding Ethers? Or what's the end game as for um, A16Z or Mike Andreasson or a venture capitalist to invest in a crypto company, right? And I find that really fascinating. People haven't talked about it because at the end of the day, if you hold Ethers, Bitcoin, I, I, again, Ethereum, I'm sure you're aware of this, went through this huge thing called the merge. And it, it's actually a, a big, huge deal because then it allows, it, it allows Ethers to be mined without generating a lot of electricity. But more importantly, on the in the long run, it allows Ethereum to have much faster transaction speeds. Now you can actually build real world applications on top of that. So the future is bright for Ethereum. But here's the thing, just because the future is bright for Ethereum doesn't mean that the future is bright for Ethers, right? Because again, they're not security shares. The, the, the Ethers aren't, the Ethereum is not a company. You know, 
holding ethers just means you hold shares of a company that's going to expand in size. So therefore, because the whole thing about a cryptocurrency is something very new, like I don't know. I mean, even if I can tell you that I think Ethereum is going to do with this merge, I think there's a lot of promising opportunity. I'm still not convinced that it's worthwhile holding ethers, right? Because the correlation between holding, you know, when you have a company that's doing well, there's a correlation between that security and companies. If the company does well, so will the security and the price of that company. Of that stock, I'm not sure if I can say the same thing for ethers or cryptocurrencies. Well, the analogy I've heard is it's like investing in the infrastructure of this new digital payments system, right? This underlying technology. But you're right. I mean, as many people predicted, we've seen play out over the last 12, 24 months. The crypto space was very much venture capital, right? And high risk, high reward, huge amounts of volatility. They'll likely be kind of like the dot-com boom in the 90s. There'll be two or three winners and then a lot of losers, but the winners will have massive market share. Well, so here's the thing. And this, I, I want to, I, I, if I get a little bit lost or wonky, please stop me because this is a very new thought that, that I've had and I find it interesting. The thing is that if I, so I, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, the, the gist of uh, what I believe is the gist of cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies came about because people said intermediaries were really this, were, upset with intermediaries. They said, you know, I'd love to, you know, we'd love to have a payment system, the whole notion of Bitcoin. We'd love to have a payment system that isn't sort of controlled by a bank that when they do badly, they have to be bailed out by governments, right? So can we, I'd like to conceive of find a, a payment system without an intermediary. And so all these other cryptocurrencies have the same thing. We'd love to be able to conceive of something without an intermediary. It's democratic. You don't have some company in the middle that sort of you know, oozes out all the profits and behaves in a, in a, in a bad way. It's all sounds good and dandy, right? So that, that sounds great. Once you start saying, okay, I want to develop this, then you have a fundamental question, which is, hey, I need a bunch of people to do coding. I need a bunch of people to do marketing, right? If we want to sort of make this project to grow and get it to be used by people, well, how do we incentivize people to do that? Right? If you're a company, you pay people. So then you say, okay, well, what we're going to do is decentralize. We're going to cooperatively as you know as decentralized members of this consortium of this project we're going to give people tokens or cryptocurrencies to reward them to participate in the project so at the point that we give them at the very beginning they're not worth anything but if the if their work does really well and people see promise in their work then because these things actually immediately trade in the open market, in a cryptocurrency exchange, they'll be worth something. And that's the gist of all cryptocurrencies, right? So at some point in time, they're worth a lot of, they're worth insignificant amounts of money. Okay. This is great. Here's the problem. They're not securities. This is not a company. If you're a rational actor, like truly, if you're a rational actor, your end goal is to get out at some point in time because there's no IPO market, right? So here's the thing. These aren't securities. So they, there's no IPO opportunity in of themselves. Let's say, okay. Well, 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 let's find the buyer. You can't find the buyer for a company that is not a company, right? So if, if a company wanted to buy them, how would they buy them in the first place? It's not a company to begin with. Well, and this is, you know, Jamie Dimon came out recently and said that <laughs> crypto is essentially a massive Ponzi scheme because exactly for the reason that you mentioned, right? It's you need to ultimately find a buyer to get liquid. And the only way you can do that is convince them there's future value. This is kind of this... This self-fulfilling prophecy that, again, the critics would say a bunch of really smart people got together and pumped this thing up and then dumped it and made a ton of money on 
kind of retail investors at the end user. So I would say this. One of the things is that for the most part, I mean, I, there are a lot of scams. This is well attended. Here's, I think, here's what I think. I just sort of thought about this. If you look at it, you're a finance person, right? So one of the things I think most people, like finance, people in finance come up with products all the time, all the time. And they don't necessarily truly, one could argue, they don't truly create economic value. What they do is they're kind of, uh, they create value in amongst the community. Well, finance, it's it, they've been, so they, it's been their domain for years and years and years. Like I, I hear about swaps and contracts and all these other things that were complicated or, uh, you know, what happened with 2008. They're coming up with all these products for the benefit of being able to make money off of this. So derivatives off of derivatives off of derivatives. What technology people have figured out, and this is, I think, is the key, is that they could do that themselves. They could do the financial engineering themselves and make the money that financial engineers do themselves. Right? I'll give you a story. And this is traditional venture capital. So I was just talking to someone, I had dinner with someone who was heavily involved in a, in a, in a technology project. At the end of the day, you know, they built this thing. And uh, when they came down to sort of talking about shares, they, they were offered 5%, 10%. And me, I know I, I'm not a venture capitalist, but I've worked with startups. I've been involved with startups. That's actually a very common perspective that VCs and finance people have had about technology. They said, that's great. This works really wonderful, but you're a dime a dozen. We'll give you 5%. We'll give you 10%, right? So what technology builders and what crypto has sort of, and I think this is a big sort of thing about cryptos, they decided, you know what? I don't need venture capital if I can mint coins that are worth nothing and then give it to people and have it or trade in a free market and have it be worth something. I don't need finance people. I, you know, I can, once we, this exists, I don't need financial engineers. I could do financial engineer stuff myself. Right. And so basically they became an, you know, they didn't need the financiers. They didn't need the venture capitals, capitalists. And then, uh, so, and then this became an opportunity to make money. So that's the bottom line is that this, the crypto represented an opportunity for people who weren't financiers, who weren't venture capitalists to make a boatload of money. So in that sense, I wouldn't necessarily, and, and they were well intended. They just, it was an opportunity. It wasn't by design. It, it has aspects of a Ponzi scheme. The difference, what I would say is that for a lot of them, the meaning was, it was well intended. The sort of the, I, the long term, where it goes in the long term, that is unclear. But I'll give you one thing uh, that I found out. The one of the largest, one of the most wealthy crypto people is the guy who goes by CZ, and he's the owner of Binance. Okay, and I was curious. He owns ninety percent of his company. There is nobody. I mean, you including they don't even have to. Be, they could be a private company. It's very rare to find a company worth billions of dollars that are owned by ninety percent by one person or a founder. Because eventually, even if you're a private company, you still have to bring in VCs, you still have to bring in angels, and every time you give away points. What ZZ figured out is you didn't have to if you can self-fund everything as a crypto, as a crypto endeavor. So I'm sorry I went long-winded, but I, I, I think the, uh, the way I like to look at it is it gave technology people for the first time the power to sort of control their will and make money the way that financiers and venture capitalists have been able to do for the last hundred years. I completely agree. I think that's why the adoption amongst Gen Zs and millennials who are pushing back against the Wall Street products and the, the narrative that took place after 2008, that's why it strikes such a deep forward, in my opinion. The thing, though, is that at some point that has to hit reality. Right, which is sort of what we're what I'm talking about. You know, Ether is hit like a huge technological milestone, which is the the margin proof of stake. 
right? Where I think reality is going to hit is four or five years down the road, you have a thriving ecosystem. What are those ethers worth? I can tell you right now, Ethereum, unless they go through some additions, Ethereum is, you, you know that if you wanted to buy right now, currently, if I want to trade for a $500 NFT, I pay $250 in Ether fees to do that. It's, it, it makes no sense. So I think the reality is going to hit in the, in the long run. So it worked well. It's a great experiment. People made a lot of money. And again, as I said, what most for the most part, well-intended, right? Yeah, the combination of these technology booms, a huge part of it was the free money available, the fact that you had investment money, retail and uh, retail and Wall Street having all this money that they wanted to invest in. So it's reached a certain stage, and now there's this thriving ecosystem. What's going to happen in the long run, I don't know. I'll tell you something that I just heard about, which I think I find intriguing. So one of the regulations, one of the many, I'm not on top of all of them, that's floating around is allowing projects, giving to say, okay, here, you're a crypto project. You can declare that yours is a utility token, right? And then you have about two, three years to prove that it will be a utility token. Otherwise, it will convert to a security token. So. One of the things that I put out there, and I, I I think is something that I'm interested in researching, I think it's quite possible what may happen in the future is that there'll be some regulations or some policy set in place so that a community, a successful cryptocurrency community can sell itself to a company. Okay. And one of the interesting things about that is the whole ethos, again, I I'm sure you were aware of this. The whole ethos, again, but the whole point of doing this was lack of centralization. You don't want an intermediary. You know, this is democratic. If you look at every single one of those crypto projects, they are centralized to some extent. I wouldn't say very less centralized than a company, but they're a lot a lot less decentralized than you would think the narrative would state. As we round out the conversation, this has been great. We'll have to do a round two because we didn't cover half the stuff I wanted to. Again, I'm not asking for financial advice. I know you're an academic. Maybe term things in, in the framework of risk reward. Where do you think the highest and lowest risk reward is today within the blockchain crypto space in terms of areas to invest in? I would actually say that risk reward is exactly the same across the board. What I mean by that is that the highest reward stuff is the most risky stuff. So let's start with the Let's start with what I always tell people, because I get asked to be on interviews all the time, and they all sort of are interested in the, in the investment question. So 99% of any crypto project out there is BS. So unless you're uh, unless you're a knowledgeable trader, I know you do family offices. So again, these they're they're more sort of long-term investment types. So for most like family offices, I wouldn't touch them. So I'd say the vast majority are speculative tools. They're great gambling. You can make a lot of money gambling, but you can also lose a lot of money gambling and, and the time frames are short. So I and then I think there's about a couple of dozen projects, Ethereum for sure, Solana, some of the metaverse ones like decentralized and sandbox, helium. I, again, I'm, I'm not being exhaustive here, but there's a couple dozen, I would say, that I think you want an investor could look upon like it's a biotech. It's a it's a speculative biotech or spe- speculative technology uh, company worthwhile investing, but knowing that you could lose a good chunk of the money. The thing there, and it tied in what I've been talking about, is that you have to have an exit plan because, because you know, a biotech, for instance, right? If you go early stage biotech, um, at some point it becomes huge. You know that the stock's going to get, you know, exploded, 
So you, uh, you as an investor, as a shareholder in that stock, you're going to reap the benefits. As I told you before, you do have the case with cryptos where the project itself could become wildly successful, but the cryptos made in of themselves might not um, might not appreciate in price the same point. At the same point, uh, you could also have a place where the project doesn't necessarily get huger, but the crypto gets huge. So you just it's you have to sort of treat it like a, a crypto stock. I'm uh, sorry, you have to treat it like a biotech stock, but you have to know you say this is where I exit. You have to have an exit. Right. Kind of like in that sense, kind of like commodity investing. I, I believe if you're a commodity investor, you don't really believe you're going to hold a commodity forever. You don't hold, you know, you, you trade commodity, right? If you're, so I think that's the second. And I think the third is, is Bitcoin. And I think you can treat Bitcoin like digital gold, right? And in fact, I think to me, um, you know, to me in the long run, I think Bitcoin will behave like you just want to know how, if you want to know how Bitcoin will behave, just look at the central, federal bank, central bank. I, I really honestly believe it's just a, it's like a some option very correlated with what the central bank does. And that's how actually I, I hold Bitcoin. I haven't, um, I sold them for a while. Again, number one, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not one to offer advice just because I haven't, I haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. Like I only have a little amount of Bitcoin, but you know, I, I think I'll buy it back eventually. Once uh, what I'll do is, is when the Fed starts, uh, pauses i think when the fed pauses bitcoin prices will get a perk and when the fed starts cutting rates bitcoin will go up okay we'll have to do round two and see what we got right what we got wrong here henry i want to thank you for joining us it was an awesome conversation like i said we'll have to do a follow-on because we only covered about 25 percent of the subjects that i wanted to for our listeners i hope you enjoyed the episode if there's something in particular you like please do comment share, et cetera. Henry, if people are interested in connecting with you and learning more about the work you're doing at York, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. So I think easiest is just Google Henry Kim York University on LinkedIn, and then you can just connect with me. Check out my lab, which is blockchain.lab.yorku.ca. I think those are you know a few, few keystrokes you can... And let me know that you you found out about this through um, Excelsior's podcast, and I'd love to I'd connect with you and love to give you uh, share more and talk to you about, more about what you're doing. One bonus question, and I'm going a little bit on the limb here. I haven't done enough homework on you, but are you a Maple Leafs fan? Oh, huge. But then, okay. I, you know, I'm a Maple Leafs fan, and I'm a, I went to Michigan, so I'm a Michigan Wolverines fan. So, will the Maple Leafs get out of the first round this year? I don't know. I don't think it was they, – they, they dropped it quite low, right? So, um, are, are you in Nashville, right? So, are you a Predators I'm fan? From, I'm from upstate New York, but, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Predators fan. I'm a huge hockey fan, so um, – I love the Leafs original six, but just perennially underachieve in the playoffs. So they are, they are. I don't know. I mean, I you know every year it's good. It's just if you're if if the if if the Leafs win the Stanley Cup, it'll be it'll be it'll be fun here. It's fun <laughs> when the Jays win. It'll be even like twice as big here. Cool, Henry. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, I look forward to doing this again. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. We're wonderful talking to you, Brian. Take care. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 